that's what's kind of at the heart of when their rivalry became bigger than them. It's the question of, you don't just pick a camp. Which camp you pick says something about your entire mm. worldview and what matters to you and how you view football. You know, is it about winning or is it about playing beautifully? Are you into the cult of Ronaldo personality or are you <laughs> into this guy who presents himself as the ultimate team player, but is also a maniac? Hello and welcome to Take Line, folks. That's right. Get that beans and toast out. The EPL is back. I'm your host, Jason Concepcion, and to help celebrate the debut of the 2022-2023 English Premier League season, I will be talking to Josh Robinson of the Wall Street Journal about opening weekend in the EPL. Um, it was fun. There's uh, tons of storylines, fun action. I'm so happy that sport is back. And then we'll be catching up with all things Lakers with Trevor Lane of Laker Nation. Uh, Super producer Zuri Irvin is going to jump in to talk about his beloved Lakers and what they should do and how much he can't wait to, one, trade Russell Westbrook and to welcome a notable member of the New York Knicks back to the Lakers. I'll leave it veiled as who that is. You'll have to listen to figure out uh, who the answer to that identity is. But first, let's get into it with the great Josh Robinson. McAllister's arriving. Oh, and De Gea doesn't get there properly. And Gross does. A sensation here. Well, the unexpected has hit Manchester United right between the eyes. It's opening weekend in the English Premier League, uh, and we had to have Josh Robinson of the Wall Street Journal to help us unpack all the doings. What a weekend. Josh, thank you for joining us. Always a pleasure. I want to give Brighton their flowers because they have handed United only their second opening day loss in the post-Alex Ferguson era. So congratulations to Brighton. <laughs> and next, your thoughts on United. You know, Eric Ten Hag comes, is lured from his perch in Ajax. He comes to United, immediately begins feuding with uh, Ronaldo, it seems, who can't wait to leave the team. Where can he go? Who, where can they send him? Who can afford him? They bring him on at halftime or at the 50th minute, thereabouts. How can we move forward in this way if we're United, if we're supporters of United? Well, there's there's two things going on at Man United. One is you've got Eric Ten Hag, who comes from one of the like smartest, best yep. run, most well thought out clubs in Europe. There is a structure <laughs> for everything. There are nine year olds who you know are projected to be in the first team in like 2032. Yes, and you have all of that in a coherent philosophy, and then he gets dropped into a reboot. And by the way, it's a reboot starring Cristiano Ronaldo. Yes. And Cristiano Ronaldo, <laughs> you know, the, the United relationship to Cristiano Ronaldo right now is like, uh, it's like that Homer Simpson thing about alcohol. He is the cause of <laughs> and solution to all of yeah. United's problems. Uh, I mean, this is a huge club, despite the, the, the kind of wobbles they've had in the post-Ferguson era. This is a huge club. They can't buy it. They can't buy a striker somewhere. Like, I, I, I. They can't find anybody to lead the line uh, who is, you know, uh, not Ronaldo. 
but is more dependable than Ronaldo? Like, I'm confused as to what their business is. Well, it's we have this discussion like every two, three years in the Premier League of is the number nine dead? Yeah. Right. And it's like in the periods where the number nine is dead, you get people like Olivier Giroud turning into Premier League stars. And in the period where the number nine is Arsenal legend, Arsenal legend only scores great goals. Uh, <laughs> but in the periods where the number nine is thriving, uh, they want to play Champions League football. And United can't offer that. Let's talk about uh, their crosstown rivals and uh, burgeoning home of the new number nine uh, in England, Erling Holland, Manchester City. Um, I was ready to, you know, I was ready to write Holland off. Mostly because I'm a hater, not for any actual reason other than you know, Pep has spent his entire career building out this philosophy of these beautiful triangles and you have to have X amount of passes before we do this. And if you boot the ball over the top to the striker, I'm going to pull you. Uh, and now they have added a man, Erling Holland, who, I mean, you just boot him the ball, just kick it into space. Like, forget the give and goes, just like hit him the ball. Uh, and he scored one of those kind of iconic left-footed goals that he has been tattooing across Europe uh, previous to this. Your thoughts on on City over West Ham? Well, it's, it's interesting because the last time, you know, the closest thing I think we've seen to Holland is Slatan. And, you know, Pep had that guy too. Yeah. And could not, he could not get along with him. No, he didn't. You know, and Slatan famously left saying, uh, you know, he kept his Ferrari in the garage. And... So with, with Holland, it's like you think it's going to be this huge different philosophy, but now it's, I don't know, City didn't look that markedly different to me. Mm -hmm. It was just like City plus, <laughs> you know, it, it, they've, they've now taken a tank and put like an extra gun on it. It's um, he's just more present than sort of the empty spaces that they've had in that spot before. I mean, we as the people who've been kind of like wondering, well, how's this going to work with with Pep, considering his history and his philosophy? Uh, are the people who've been wondering about that? We just have that overblown. It's not a it's not a big deal. They'll they'll figure it out. I, I will say, you know, clearly from this game, whatever uh, Holland's, you know, the the shakiness, the rustiness in the, in the Community Shield game. There was a little bit of his teammates not knowing exactly how to find him, and it seemed certainly against West Ham. That Which is crazy because he's nine feet tall. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, he looks like a barbarian running through the middle. He looks, you know, it looks like that, uh, like the movie The Northman, like just like running into Raid of Village somewhere. So we've been making too much of that. I, I think so. I mean, the you know, we'll learn more. Uh, once the Champions League starts, I think the, that's always the kind of mm -hmm. at the same time, it's the pep laboratory, but it's also the thing that drives him craziest. Um, so we'll see how he uses him in those roles where, you know, preparing for to face West Ham is ultimately pretty straightforward. If you have better players at every position, you know, you know how they're going to set up. And that's exactly what Holland is there for. And that's going to mm. be probably, you know, 25 games of, of this campaign are going to look exactly like that. Last season, it came down to a, a thrilling uh, final game uh, of Liverpool and Manchester City of who would be sitting atop the table at the end of the season. And uh, so let's talk about Liverpool who uh, came up with a draw against a Fulham team that 
seems like they are going to be here to absolutely fight for every single point in the Premier League this season. Uh, Liverpool looked strangely disinterested to start the game. Your thoughts on this match? I, I thought, yeah, Liverpool looked a little bit gassed. Yeah. I don't know if they're still tired from the high rhythm they played last season and the maximum number of games that they played. You know, they they went to the end of every competition. But I don't know if that's also delayed their preparation. I think there are also teams taking some gambles with preseason and doing things differently mm-hmm. with a view to the World Cup. And, you know, Liverpool, you know, the training ground is going to be empty for three weeks uh, in November because all of those guys are going to the World Cup with one team or another. So they're in a situation where, you know, it's possible they got their physical preparation wrong and they're going to be ready at a different time that wasn't last weekend. Yeah. Concerns at the back for Klopp? The first ever mistake by Virgil van Dijk in recorded human history. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, I mean, but that's, I think that comes down again to, not being physically 100%. They just, mm. you know, if the if the body's not there 100%, they're not going to be switched on either. And, and it, it was sloppy, which we're not used to seeing from them. Uh, let's talk about a team that should be gassed. Uh, when, when last we saw uh, the Tottenham side, they were vomiting on the pitch uh, after being run into seemingly their graves by Antonio Conte. And then Southampton came out and just... Uh, got run over by this Tottenham squad who just got stronger and stronger and stronger as seemingly as the game went on. I, I'm an Arsenal supporter, so I didn't like to see this. I'm terrified of this. Your thoughts on on Tottenham? I think it's it's the, the flip side of what we just discussed with Liverpool. I think we're going to see some real fitness asymmetries at the top early in the season. Yeah. Just because of how they've approached the split season. Um, this idea that they're going to have to kind of peak and then burn the best part of their season on the World Cup and their national teams and then be fit again to play. Uh, I believe the schedule calls for roughly a thousand games between December 26th <laughs> and, and January 4th. Uh, I mean, it's, like, it's not good. Like, you know, it felt like when those videos and images emerged of Tottenham's preseason training uh, and you see players laying about the pitch after having been made to run 500 sprints or some ridiculous number. It felt like a, a we were turning the clock back to like 1997 or something like that. Um, this can't, <laughs> I mean, it, it's great for now. Uh, get the, get that endurance up. Uh, clearly they, they had a sharper edge than, than Southampton, but it, you, this is not good for the long haul, is it? It can't be. Well, it's it's a throwback to 1997 in like SEC football. Um, you know, it doesn't. 1997 <laughs> right. in the Premier League was people still puking because they were hungover. Uh, <laughs> right, right, and uh, yeah, having but, a chippy at at halftime. Yeah, exactly. Um, so, can it be good? I mean, the other thing about about Conte's Tottenham is they are so well drilled. Yeah, like, for the first time in a long, long yeah. time, I would say since Poch, everyone seems to know exactly what they're doing on the pitch, and you know what they're doing most of the time is running really hard which is what that system requires. But if they can overwhelm teams like that, you know, there comes a point where if you do it in the first 70 minutes, you don't need to do it in the last 20 minutes. So, you know, it's kind of the twisted efficiency uh, principle. Okay, so we've talked about the Spurs and now it is time to talk about Arsenal and it feels 
it feels like that game now has that match has taken place two weeks ago now. Uh, Arsenal uh, 2-0 over Crystal Palace, a solid Crystal Palace team. Uh, Gabriel Jesus making me, you know, see visions of the rapture in the first half. (laughs) Didn't score, but dancing through the defense in ways that I could only have imagined in my fever dreams. Your thoughts on Arsenal? Uh, Big signings on the offseason, adding to what was already a a promising and talented young core that was clearly learning how to play. Arteta, uh, out of excuses this season, uh, one would expect. Uh, Your thoughts on Arsenal looking forward? Is there optimism for once? I thought they really played like their brains and their hearts were holding hands. (laughs) which is the uh, Arteta drawing from the new Amazon series in the locker room, a management philosophy that I had not been familiar with. <laughs> I want to say just of the all or nothing Arsenal, I would almost at this point not know anything about Arteta's coaching. St- I just, I, I'm almost saddened that I watched some of it. I'll just say that, but I, I'll continue. I, I'm a fan of Arteta. If I, as long as I don't watch the series. Right. There were moments that were very British office. Yes. But no, they, I mean, it feels like, and I know we've been here before with Arsenal in the past yes. couple of years with Arsenal. There have been moments like, you know, the FA Cup semifinals, mm-hmm. the, you know, it's, it feels like you could tweet every other week, Arteta Ball is here. Um, <laughs> and I think that was the feeling Friday, but Jesus gives them something up front that they haven't had in a, in a while, mm-hmm. you know. It really makes a difference to see someone up there who, one, cares, which Obama Young did not for a long time. Yeah. And two, who has a, a level of, of crackling talent that Alex Lacazette, for all the good work he did, never had. He just was never at that level. Yeah. Um, and we're seeing a different kind of Jesus from the one we saw at City, too. At City, he was really the guy on the end of things. And here, seeing him just pick up the ball outside the box and drive drive into the to the six yard box was yeah. really unusual for him and and exciting. And there's something about this Arsenal team that feels very good about uh, you know, and and also at the back, you know, it's not nothing that William Saliba was man of the match. I, I could not agree more. I'm very very excited by that. Again, as an Arsenal supporter, who the defense has been called into question year after year after year after year, it seems. Um, any other thoughts on, on opening window? What stood out to you as a longtime watcher of one of the most storied leagues in the world? Uh, I mean, really, I think Tottenham was the team that kind of popped yeah, this weekend. Yeah, unfortunate. You know, unfortunate. In, a, in an unexpected way. In an yeah. unexpe- um, and then, I mean, it's interesting to see kind of a sputtering Chelsea as well. You know, they kind of labored against Everton, which – you know, Everton's going to be in that battle to stay up again this year. And Chelsea just like ground out a, a one nil win with a penalty and no striker. Yeah. I, um, a, a frankly boring uh, match and absolutely silent in the park, it seemed, which was notable for the kind of like low energy there. Um, of course, Chelsea has been through is going through uh, a lot of upheaval from last season in their kind of, you know, ownership structure. Um, they just looked uninspired and w- completely lacking in a cutting edge. Do you see, you know, what do they have to, to offer in terms of solutions to this? Well, they're, they're still 
going to be active in the transfer market, I think, because Raheem Sterling, while he's a good signing, is probably not enough to address all the needs they have. But the problem they have is that, uh, you know, that this American-led group came in, took over the club, and made the fundamental mistake that American-led groups make when they take over Premier League clubs, which is thinking they know about the Premier League. Um, and every time it's the, like, no, we're going to do this differently, we're going to be smarter. And then he appointed Todd Bailey uh, appoints himself sporting director uh, in <laughs> an interim way. So it's it's just not where you want to be with you know three weeks left in the transfer window and needing to make a big deal. Oh gosh, uh, anything else? Anything to look forward to as the season progresses? I, I you know I I guess we would assume that uh, it's going to be City and Liverpool coming down the stretch again, which you know I I don't think this is going out on a limb here, but I I. I expect City to uh, turn back uh, a spirited challenge from Liverpool as we go down the stretch here. But any surprises to look out for? Um, I'm curious to see what happens with Newcastle. I don't think they're there, you know, in the challenging for, for the top European places yet. But they could be in, you know, that sort of Leicester-West Ham battle mm. uh, around six, seven. Sorry, Leicester-West Ham-Man United battle uh, for sixth, seventh. There are thereabouts, and um, I mean, I think I think we're going to have a real battle for those Champions League places again that Arsenal will be legitimately involved in. If Arsenal do not make a Champions League place this season, Arteta out? Is that it? Or do the or let's say they show some real improvements and some real cohesiveness over the course of the season? Do we think he gets another shot at it if they don't make a Champions League place? How far do they get in the Europa League? Let's say they get to the semifinals. It's, they're going to have to make a really big decision because they've been the biggest spenders yeah. uh, or close to it in the past two summers. You know, Arteta can no longer blame anything. He can't blame any holdovers from the Wenger era or the Emery era or, you know, the brief unhappy reign of Freddie Jungberg. <laughs> uh, Josh, uh, you've got a, a book coming out. Tell us about it. Yes, November 1st, it's called Messi versus Ronaldo, One Rivalry, Two Goats, and the Era That Remade the World Game. And it's a look at really how the past 15 years of soccer have been shaped by this rivalry that Messi and Ronaldo never really intended or controlled. And sometimes, but but we know they were driven by it. Mm. Um, And the ripple effects of their mere presence is incredible across all of soccer. I mean, you know, the business changed around them in terms of just, you know, I think for the first time we saw people becoming fans of players rather than clubs and people, you know, fan bases following these guys around. We saw it in particular with Ronaldo, Um, but also clubs, you know, one, one of the most fascinating things to me was how they were not prepared for that level of genius and that longevity um, and we're seeing it play out with Barcelona right now. They mortgaged yeah. their entire future because they could not afford to be uncompetitive for a single season of Messi's prime, which lasted like 15 years. Obviously, as you just noted, the waves of their impact continue to wash up. Barca restructured their various debts over the offseason in ways that, I don't know, it seems like if you're already in financial trouble... Uh, borrowing more money to immediately send it out the door at, uh, after players is maybe not the wisest. And then we're seeing the uh, kind of like end stage Ronaldo and what that looks like at United. Take us back. Like, wh- where do you, 
you stack up the two against each other. Who's number one and who's number one A? <laughs> well, all of it depends on how you measure, right? If right. you're measuring Ballon d'Ors, it's going to be Messi, obviously. And and if you're counting goals, it's Ronaldo. And it, that's what's kind of at the heart of when their rivalry became bigger than them. It's the question of, you don't just pick a camp. Which camp you pick says something about your entire mm. worldview and what matters to you and how you view football. You know, is it about winning or is it about playing beautifully? Are you into the cult of Ronaldo personality or are you <laughs> into this guy who presents himself as the ultimate team player, but is also a maniac? And they, they appear so different. And I think one of the things that surprised me the most in working on the book was realizing how similar they are. They're mm. both at heart competitive monsters who at times make everyone around them better and at times can bring entire clubs to their knees. I'm, I'm struck by in this, you know, in this Titanic competition between two of the most iconic athletes we've ever seen, how almost like a blank slate, their feelings for each other or about each other are. Did any of that emerge in your research? Well, it's it's funny. I mean, you, we heard about uh, little things from people close to Ronaldo, yeah. for instance, who told us that Ronaldo's kid, Cristiano Jr., adores Messi. Um, <laughs> and that, you know, by and large, there is no, there doesn't seem to be much ill will. You know, the the story, as funny as it is and appealing as it is, that you cannot say Messi's name in Ronaldo's presence <laughs> is sadly apocryphal. Um, but, you know, that's why a few years ago, I think it was at a UEFA awards show, they were sitting next to each other. And, you know, Ronaldo said that they'd never been out for a meal together. And this thing has been viewed, by the way, on YouTube, because I looked 60 million times. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Um, and it's because, like, people want to project something onto them, and they want to project either a hatred or a friendship or something in between. And it turns out these are just two guys going about their business. I'm excited to read this, Josh, for real. Two of the most legendary athletes we've ever seen, and I think we were only beginning to grapple with how incredible it was that we got to watch them at the same time. Uh, he is Josh Robinson of the Wall Street Journal. Josh, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. possibly open the season with Russell Westbrook on their roster. Can that happen? Is it wise for that to happen? They finished 33 of 49 last season. Uh, and of course, all the drama in the offseason as the Lakers uh, seem determined to move Russell Westbrook, uh, who equally seems determined to go. To help us unpack all of this is Trevor Lane, host of Lakers Nation and NBA front office. Trevor, welcome to Take Line. Wonderful to have you. Oh, thank you so much for having me. Wonderful to meet you face-to-face -face for the first time in this fashion over, over a Zoom call. So the rumors surfaced uh, via hoops hype. It's, it's hard in the, you know, in today's sports media landscape sometimes to like 
pull the string, pull the aggregator string and find the root of, of like some of these rumors. But I think it's, uh, I think it's hoops hype that first came with a proposed three team trade, supposedly proffered by the Lakers. Utah would send Donovan Mitchell to the Knicks, a combination of two players, including Patrick Beverly and Jordan Clarkson, Bojan Bogdanovich or Malik Beasley to the Lakers and the Jazz would receive significant draft compensation from the Knicks and Lakers. Of course, Danny Ainge loves those draft picks. Uh, your thoughts on this rumored deal? I mean, I think it's kind of combining a few different rumors that have been out there. I mean, we've heard the Lakers talking yes. with the Knicks. We've heard them talking with the Jazz. The Jazz obviously talking with the Knicks on a Donovan Mitchell deal. Why not just add everybody together and make it, <laughs> make it one big party? Have some, have some fun. Um, I, I, when I look at this trade, it, it, it makes some sense in that the Jazz aren't trying to necessarily win games this season. They're going to be in the Victor Wembanyama sweepstakes. That's what seems to be their uh, their goal here, in addition to adding as many draft picks as they can. But if you look at what they'd be potentially sending to the Lakers, it's not terrible as far as a fallback plan goes. You could add, you know, Patrick Beverly, give you some defense, a little bit of three-point shooting, at least respectability there. And then let's say it's Boyan Bogdanovich, again, a guy who can shoot. We certainly know this Lakers roster needs that. And maybe the most important piece, Russell Westbrook would be somewhere else and, and the Jazz would be taking <laughs> on that salary. So there, there is some sense to it, but you know, whenever you start adding in three teams, four teams, like it just becomes that much more difficult to actually get a deal done. Not to mention trading with Danny Ainge is uh, it's never an easy proposition. No, and I think that the uh, I can't help but notice when reading this rumor that this is a hamburger with no burger because what Danny Ainge wants, we know, isn't necessarily the players. He doesn't. He doesn't want anybody good that could potentially help them win even one game. He wants the picks. He wants the picks, and we're and it's unclear exactly what that draft uh, compensation would be. Uh, th there have been rumors that he's been asking for as many as four unprotected picks uh, from the Knicks. Of course, the Knicks uh, uh, gladly, I say, as a Knicks fan who has seen many crazy things happen over the years, gladly it seems as if Leon Rose is. Uh, playing the long game and is not uh, going to give up the farm in terms of picks, understanding that they do have some leverage here. Um, what can the Lakers do thinking, of, you know, under those terms to move Russell Westbrook? They've seemed kind of unwilling to part with too many picks, but it kind of seems like folks you are going to have to do it. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that's where people are starting to look at the tra the upcoming training camp starting up as maybe a soft deadline where the Lakers are going to have to really make a decision here. They've been trying to hold the gr their ground and say, now, look, if we're going to trade Russell Westbrook, we're going to give up either the 2027 or 2029 first round pick. We'll throw in some second rounders, things like that to kind of, you know, sweeten the pot. But we're not going to do both. We're not going to do two first round picks. And most opposing teams, and, you know, this is rightfully so, look at it as you got to pay us one first round pick for Russell Westbrook. And then if we're going to give you stuff back, if we're going to take on Russell Westbrook, then we're going to give you back stuff of value, whether it's Miles Turner and Buddy Heald, the, mm -hmm. the pieces from the Jazz, whatever, that's also going to cost a first round pick. So we're only going to do this if we get to first. And the belief is that the Lakers will ultimately blink and the Lakers are hoping that uh, some other team out there will blink. Maybe it's 
the Brooklyn Nets. So I think that's probably top of their, their <laughs> list is to try to get something done for Kyrie Irving. They're also waiting on, on that. But right now it's a staring contest. And the thought is that maybe, yeah. maybe training camp coming up will force action on one side or the other. Darvin Ham, new coach Darvin Ham, has, has done nothing but say supportive and praiseful things about Russell Westbrook, uh, you know, as they as we head into, uh, you know, the weeks leading up to training camp, talking about how, you know, he's he I can't wait to feature Russ, the things he wants him to do, et cetera. He's excited about what Russ could uh, bring to the team. And kind of the subtext of all that is, you know, as long as Russ more effectively uh, molds himself to a team concept, i.e. maybe play a little defense, maybe set some screens, maybe do some stuff off ball, which Russ, over the course of his career, and, you know, the numbers on this are out there and you can, <laughs> and are kind of funny, Has Russ has never really done. Uh, you know, the lowest, I think, screen setter per game for a player who had enough minutes to be on that list. Is there a world in which, Darvin Ham, the Lakers make this work? <laughs> like, is there a world in which Russ goes, you know what? I know I have resisted doing all of this stuff for my entire career, but actually now I'm going to do it. I mean, if the, if there was ever a time when it was going to happen, because we've been talking about this for years <laughs> with Russell Westbrook, right? But yeah, years, if, if, legitimately years. I mean, really, that's <laughs> that's what it's been. I mean, we've been hearing for so long, oh, Russ is going to be a slasher this year, and he's going to set all these screens, and he's going to limit himself to just corner threes, all these things that Darvin Ham's asking him to do. This isn't new. Yeah. This isn't new information or anything, but Russ is a free agent next summer. Now, he's getting paid $47 million this year, so you can look at it and say, well, he has $47 million to continue being Russell Westbrook and to continue doing the things that he's done. But at some point, I don't, I don't know if Russ is here or not, but at some point, all, every star player has to either make that transition into no longer being that, that star player or not. And yeah. for Russ, that might mean accepting being off the ball a little bit more, doing the screening, doing all that. And... I'm, I don't know what free agency will look like for him next summer if we see a repeat of this past season. So I think there is some incentive for change here. And look, Darvin Ham, you listen to the guy speak. Oh, my gosh. You, you just want to run through a brick wall for the guy just listening to him. He's he's amazing. So absolutely. It, it, given the circumstances, just the context, it feels like if it was ever going to happen, it's now. And if it was ever going to happen for anybody, you do it for Darvin Ham. But again, I, I'm skeptical because we've never seen Russell Westbrook do it. And we've been saying it for years now. So until I see it happen, I'm going to be skeptical that it actually can work and that it is actually going to take place. We were just uh, speaking to Josh Robinson of the Wall Street Journal about the EPL and soccer in general. And uh, we were talking about Barcelona and the way that they, you know, I think naturally mortgaged their short-term, medium-term, and long-term future in order to hold on to Leo Messi, one of the most magnificent and bright stars in all of sports. Similar to that, the Lakers, they have LeBron James. It resulted in a championship. It was the bubble championship, which people will try to deride, but that's legit. Everybody played in the bubble. The entire world was going through that. But they also have some decisions to make with LeBron vis-a-vis -vis an extension perhaps going forward. Has this all been worth it? Has it all been has it all been worth it? You got one championship out of it and then kind of a lot of turmoil and of course all the kind of requisite 
attention that LeBron brings and the spotlight being incredibly hot and bright. And I think we can say that, you know, perhaps Russell Westbrook is withered under the under the glare of that spotlight. Has this all been worth it in your mind? Yeah, I mean, we just had what I've called the worst season in Lakers history in terms of fan experience. That was that was awful just watching those games on a night to night basis. But that being said, yeah, it was worth it. You got a championship out of it. And, and that's sometimes where I see a lot of Lakers fans will say, well, you know, it was only one championship. Only? Are you kidding me? <laughs> Do you know how difficult it is to win even one championship? Um, you got a championship. It was successful. There was always going to be a point where the bill was going to come due, right? Where yeah. all these picks that you gave away to get Anthony Davis, that was going to start to be an issue where the young players that you've traded away, some of those guys were just naturally going to progress. They were going to grow. And at some point you're going to look around, and you're going to go, oh man, hey, Brandon Ingram's pretty damn good now, right? But yeah, you won a championship. You've got that. You've Maybe the bill has been a little bit higher than what you expected. That pain has, has been a little bit greater, particularly if you look at last season. But again, ultimately, you got a championship out of it, so it's it's hard to it's hard to look at it and say, oh no, it's it's not worth it. Had they not won that championship, we'd be singing a different tune. But with that title in the books, yeah, I think it was worth it. Genie Bus tweeted a kind of cryptic tweet a few weeks back now, just about mm-hmm. kind of lamenting the passing of Kobe and what he meant to the team. And it seemed like the subtext of that was, you know, we will never see the likes of this kind of Laker again. That seemed particularly portentous, again, as we move into a a time when a decision on LeBron is going to have to be made by both parties. Do you have any thoughts on what that, on what the Lakers should do here? And, you know, it seems like there's a lot of politicking on both sides, whether it's like, you know, LeBron posting pictures of himself and and Bronny, mm-hmm. uh, you know, Jeannie uh, making the statements that she has made. Like, what what's going to happen here? What should happen? I think the, what the Lakers would like to happen is is them come to an agreement on an extension. They'd like to get something like that done with LeBron James, keep him around as long as they can. You know, they have positioned themselves as a franchise that is friendly to superstars for Mm-hmm. Years now. I mean, you go all the way back to, say, Kobe when he tore his Achilles and Lakers gave him a huge contract. Uh, that's that's something they've been trying to cultivate as far as their their image goes. And so I think they would like to continue that. They don't want to be seen as the franchise that, that gave up on a player or tried to lowball LeBron James or, or anything like that. The Lakers from their side of things have been pretty adamant that Jeannie was not trying to subtweet anybody with what she put out there, that it was really just about Kobe Bryant. She was feeling sad at the moment, missing Kobe. And, you know, that's, again, that's going to be their own take on it. But um, I think continuing this with LeBron for the time being makes the most sense. Injuries derailed quite a bit of of last season for him, and maybe that should be expected given his his age. But when he was on the floor, he was performing at a very, very high level. He was perhaps in the an, an MVP caliber way from what we saw of him on the floor. Had the Lakers been in a better situation in terms of their record, he probably would have been in those conversations. He wouldn't have won it, but he was up there. He was playing extremely well last season. So with that being the case, it's LeBron James. It's the brightest star in the league. You've got to try to continue this for as long as you can. And right now you've got the over 38 rule, which means we're really only talking about you know, the difference between an extension and, and no extension. We're probably talking about a one plus one extension uh, deal so with a player option so that he can go play with Bronny in 2024 if uh, if that ends up taking place. So 
We're talking about a year, probably, that we would have guaranteed mm-hmm. with, with the Lakers. And if that's the case, you're not talking about a five-year deal with LeBron or anything like that. I think you try to get the extension done, you keep it rolling, and you do what you can to, to win around one of the uh, the all-time greats. What do we need to see from Anthony Davis this season? I think, you know, uh, we all know about Anthony Davis's injury history. He's in and out of lineups from his time going back to uh, New Orleans. Uh, but when he's healthy, it's always like, oh, he's back. The impact is there. Uh, you know, uh, over the years, when Anthony Davis is on the court coming off of injury, it's like, oh, yeah, this guy's one of the best players in the league. I think last season was the first time I was like, ooh, the shooting is weirdly not there. What's going on? The defense not quite as sharp as we've seen in the past. What what kind of Anthony Davis do we need to see from going into the 2022-2023 season? I mean, the, the number one key, like you said, it's, it's health, yeah. right? I mean, he's got to be able to stay on the floor at least a reasonable amount of games. I mean, you're talking, if he's on the floor, 70 games, that's a that's a win. You'll take that. Uh, there's obviously going to be some load management and things like that in there. But that, that first and foremost, is the most important thing. Can he yeah. stay on, on the basketball court? And then from there, what you want to see is you want to get Anthony Davis closer to what you saw in the bubble in Orlando. Now, not necessarily shooting. He was on a hot shooting streak in Orlando. Yes. I don't think he can ever hit those percentages again. I don't think it's reasonable to expect him to do that. He was shooting like 85% from three or so. Not really, but but still, it felt like everything he was putting up was going in. He was on an incredibly hot hot shooting streak. I'm not anticipating that, but he needs to be respectable behind the three-point line. That's certainly part of his game. Dropped to 18% from three Last season, that can't happen Lock again. It. He's got to be above 30%. And then you want to see that versatility really come into play on the defensive end of the floor. That's what's always made Anthony Davis great, is that you've got guard defensive capabilities and that he could slide his feet and stick with just about anybody in the league, despite being, you know, what, seven foot and, and having the crazy wingspan and be able to block shots and protect the rim and, and all that. So if that's what makes Anthony Davis great, that's what we need to see again. We need to see that that all-world defender that's what's going to really try to to be the backbone of this Lakers defense, which is what Darvin Ham has already already hinted at. And they're going to need him healthy. They're going to need him active, and they're going to need him mobile out there. Which means I think we saw him put on a little bit of muscle this last season, getting ready to play the five. I think it's time to go back to the the leaner, meaner Anthony Davis this season. See if they can get that quickness back. See if they can get the explosiveness, the timing. All of that, keep him healthy on the floor, let him do what he does on the defensive end, and then hope that there's some positive regression in terms of the outside shooting numbers. That's really what you need to see. And I know that that's a lot. I just listed off a lot of things. Yeah, but, there's a lot of things. <laughs> but but let's face it, that's that's what the Lakers need if yeah. they're gonna have a successful season. There's been some Anthony Davis trade rumors out there again this time of year. It's very, very hard to like figure out what the origins of these things right. are. And sometimes it's just like some person with a Twitter account who's like, Lakers looking to trade Davis. It doesn't actually make sense, right? To trade Anthony Davis. It doesn't right. make any sense. No, no, I, I don't think so. I think that he's he's too important to what they do. And his ceiling is simply so much higher than anything that they they would get back. I don't think there's anything they yeah. get back in the trade and say, oh, you just increased your chances of winning a championship. Yeah. You're really just trying to hedge your bet on an injury there if you're if you're going to move Anthony Davis. His ceiling is high enough to where you just you roll the dice, you stick with it, and you do what you can to keep him healthy. Because that trading him right now doesn't make sense. Teams aren't going to give what they would have a couple seasons ago before he had all these injury issues. 
Trevor, look into your crystal ball and tell us what happens. What will happen with Russell Westbrook? What will happen with this Lakers team? How do they improve this team uh, as we head into, you know, a really important season with LeBron James, you know, at an age where it's actually incredible that he keeps performing at this level and you wait for it to change any minute. Uh, What's going to happen? I think they do ultimately move Russell Westbrook sometime before training camp starts up. Obviously, it's not, you know, Lakers fans were waiting for it to happen, you know, July 5th or whatever, like hoping it would be taking place. We thought, oh, Rob's meeting with people at Summer League. It's going to happen. I think it'll happen sometime before training camp. It just makes too much sense for them to to clear the air and move on. Um, What deal it feels like the Pacers deal is probably the closest one right now. But there's lots of other options out there. And it takes one phone call to change these these negotiations. So we'll see what ultimately happens, but I think they do move him. Um, as far as where the Lakers go from here, I'm assuming that you just try to add some better fitting pieces. And if you don't wind up doing a Kyrie Irving deal, you can't find that. You just try to add some better fitting pieces, some shooting, some defense on the wing. They added a bunch of young players. There's nobody that really pops off the screen at you where you go, oh my gosh, they got this guy. This is going to be fantastic. So I think this team, realistically, looking at the Western Conference and how improved the Western Conference is going to be this season, it was very forgiving last season, not going to be the case this coming season. I see them as a middle-of-the-pack playoff team in the Western Conference, and I think if they if they get into the playoffs, then best-case scenario, yeah. you've got LeBron, you've got AD. If they're both healthy, you've got a puncher's chance against just about anybody, but I certainly wouldn't be projecting that they'll be the favorites to come out of the West or win a championship or anything like that. Uh, Trevor, where can folks find your stuff? Yeah, you can find most of my my work over at the Lakers Nation YouTube channel as well as the LakersNation.com podcast, which is over on Apple Podcasts, wherever that you listen to podcasts. Uh, All of our written work goes up over at LakersNation.com, and you can follow me personally at Trevor underscore Lane on Twitter, at Trevor Lane NBA on Instagram. Trevor, thanks so much for joining us. Hey, thank you so much for having me. Let me ask you this, Zuri. Yeah. Would you welcome Julius Randle back to the <laughs> with open arms? He was a great player in his tenure with the Lakers, at least in the last few months before we shipped him off. I'm also yeah. kind of excited about Jordan Clarkson. I know this deal is not going to happen, but like the energy that Clarkson would bring. One of the greatest Filipino basketball players who has ever lived. Hands down. Still a great three-point shooter. You we were just talking with Trevor about how 80s long-range shooting is sort of dissipated and like why not just bring in some actual shooters my thing though um with LeBron is that there aren't a lot of really big names in the 2023 free agent class there's Wiggins D'Angelo Vucevic Harrison Barnes Jeremy Grant it's not really that appetizing so I'm starting to come back to like okay let's let's try this again so we'll see you know Wiggins would be like if Julius was on the market right after he had his great two seasons ago with the Knicks. Because Wiggins is a guy who, like, do you believe that he can do this right. out of the context <laughs> of the Golden State Warriors? I'm not, to be honest, sure I, I am. A lot of guys look better playing with four Hall of Famers on the team. <laughs> 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 uh, so, yeah. Do you have any hope for Russ? Do you think he can, like, you know, obviously we're, you know, tracking the the Brooklyn Nets, Kyrie, KD issues, and it seems like they're, uh, I would not at all be shocked and, in fact, expect the Nets to roll the ball out with those two guys on the floor just trying to figure it out. Like, do you have any hope that the Lakers can figure it out? (laughs) My hope for Russ is that 
he puts together a great three months in the beginning of the season. And mm-hmm. by come trade deadline, the market is different. I don't have a lot of hope that he becomes a set shooter or that he becomes this guy that wants to come off the bench. And I do like the Reeves THT combination. I think there's a little juice left there. <laughs> but my thing with Russ is like, just play well, just, just be a chip. And let's not trade him now. Let's trade him when like there's some value there. But overall, I'm sad. I'm just sad that like he came home and and it just hasn't been fun. It has actually been sad. Like for a guy who, you know, is obviously from the area, played his college ball in the area, was so delighted to come home. It can't feel great to have this happen. And I feel badly about that. It's (laughs) not fun. It's not fun to watch for sure. No. Even though I do delight, you know, hearing you say, hey, Austin Reeves, it just <laughs> makes me think, you know, how the mighty of fun. <laughs> <laughs> well, we haven't had a great lineage of like dominant point guards in the last 20 years. I've been watching them. It's really Derek Fisher and the rest. So my, I don't know. I'm never like we need, we need Kyrie or we need like a ball dominant guard to have a, a championship team. Let's get the triangle back, man. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> let's, get the tri- let's get the triangle maybe, offense maybe back. Maybe move the rock a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> um, yeah, you're right. This is a sad conversation. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, I, again, I'm wishing you the best. Thank you. Because I care about your well-being. Thank you. Uh, <laughs> and we'll see what happens. We'll see what happens with the Lakers. It'll be fun to talk about no matter what. <laughs> That's right. Go next. Go Lakers. That's it for us. Follow and subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget, subscribe to X-Ray Vision, my pop culture show on YouTube. Check it out, folks. Goodbye. Arsenal top of the league. Take Line is a Crooked Media production. The show is produced by Ryan Wallerson and Zuri Irvin. Our executive producers are myself and Sandy Gerard. Engineering, editing, and sound design by the great Sarah de Alaska and the folks at Chapter 4. And our theme music is produced by Brian Vasquez. Mia Kelman is on the Zoom for Vibes, and the vibes are fantastic all the time. <laughs>